Saints, uh, just to make sure everybody is on the same page, <laughs> literally. Okay, if you have an outline that says on Roman numeral 2, the heart of Moses, that is the wrong one. Okay, and so Bobby, has, raise your hand if your number, Roman numeral 2 says the heart of Moses, that's not the one you want, not, not the one you want. It should say the glorious implications. That's the right one. Okay, so just keep your hand raised, and we're making the hot bread as fast as we can back there. But, uh, yeah. Well, dear saints, how wonderful it is that we can continue tonight. And I realize that the... Um, a conference weekend is uh, tiring, and uh, it's, a, it's a load for you. And for you to be able to, with your many involvements, be back here tonight is wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity to continue our fellowship. Amen. So uh, praise the Lord. Amen. Well, um, uh, it's quite special that we have a fellowship for the... Um, 55 and older, loosely uh, understood. <laughs> so if you're not 55 and you're here, it's fine, no problem. <laughs> but uh, there, there are some implications here in the brothers' feeling. Uh, for the brothers to uh, prioritize and to schedule this time indicates a strong recognition of the brothers, of how important uh, the experienced seeking saints are in the church life and in the churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And so um, the primary burden, although there may be some applications in, in the little bit that I'd like to fellowship with you, the primary burden is the realization that the glorious, exceedingly glorious matters that have been brought to us by the ministry and that we've considered in this weekend conference imply a critical role and contribution for all of us, for all of you, and that it's we that through our prayers, through our fellowship, through our living, through our encouragement, are going to prepare and help the younger generation, the younger ones among us, to be able to attain to and not simply acknowledge or even dismiss the precious matters that we spoke about from Colossians, especially regarding the, extensive, the aspect of the extensiveness of the experience of Christ. So, um, you know, we have in Anaheim something called the middle age training. <laughs> and the middle age training has been a great blessing to the Lord's recovery and uh, is based on a particular kind of, of realization. And that is that not only to complement 
the energy, the vigor, and the developing constitution and um, advancement in the ministry that the young generation attains to when they come to the FTTA, the full-time training in Anaheim, and those who don't come also, also uh, pursue this. Complementing this, there's a need for persons who can take such early trained or maybe not trained, but aspiring young ones and complement their proper feeling, their proper sentiment of pursuit and consecration and wanting to give themselves, can complement that with the experiences that will enrich them, protect them, cover them, and keep them, keep them on the track, keep them on the track. And so uh, the middle-aged training has uh, served a wonderful function in doing so in the Lord's recovery. And, and uh, it was recently mentioned that in the uh, general society at large, there's a particular lack of appreciation of the contribution of the older members of society. And there's a view too often or frequently encountered that if you're past a certain age, it's too late for you. I encountered a dear saint at lunch today. Some saints invited us to go to lunch and we were at a restaurant and I, I saw a sister there at the restaurant that I hadn't seen for years. And um, she was telling me that she had, um, her life had been simplified by her children getting educated and having more time and she'd gotten new credentials. And she did very well in her credentialing. And so she'd apply for these, these jobs and she'd get a call back, please come in, we wanna talk to you, having looked at her credentials. And she said, then I walk in the door and they say, oh. <laughs> because they realized she wasn't 30, she's 60. But with excellent credentials and with a lot of life experience. But uh, so she hasn't gotten that, the, the desired position yet, but I'm sure she will. But this, this uh, you know, what she related to me, I think illustrates what I'm, what I'm mentioning that in society in general, there's a kind of thought that you reach a certain age and then it's, then it's kind of the decline of the course of the sun, the sun sets and you know, you kind of are involved in less meaningful things than you were before. But in the church, the situation is diametrically opposite to that. And so in the church, Every day, every month, every year in the church life becomes an additional qualification, an additional credential, 
additional preparation to be useful and to be meaningful in one's service in the Lord. And so kind of the general sense, the, the, the basic general sense we want to have is to encourage you that you're needed more than ever. And as the revelation before us becomes more focused, more clear, more definite, and the path to take is illumined for us all, we can't expect the younger ones to be able to make it without our help and that we are so instrumental. So some of you remember reading Brother Lee's uh, commentary about how important it is for us to, after age 40, to take care of our physical well-being, uh, as did Brother, Brother Nee in his book, The Character of the Lord's Worker. And regarding this, he said that if you're serving the church life and you're in your 50s, your service is more precious, more contributory than it was when you were in your 40s. And if you're in your 60s, it's more contributory than it was when you were in your 50s. And if you're in your 70s, it's more rich than it was when you were in your 60s. And when you're in your 80s, it's more beneficial and more contributory than, you, than it was when you were in your 70s. And when you're in your 90s, It continues to be valuable, and whatever you do has more weight, has more contribution than it did when you were a decade earlier. So this was Brother Lee's feeling, and this is why it's important for us to really take care of our well-being and our health so that we can reach that time of maximum contribution in our 80s and our 90s, right? Do we have any over 100 that are serving in the church life? It'd be good. Let's go for it, huh? <laughs> See if we can get to be over 100 in serving, serving the church life. So, <clears throat> saints, um, the little handout that you have is, is not uh, for me to give you a message, although it may seem that way, um, but it's to um, take this matter of the experience of Christ, the knowing and the experience of Christ, that we had this weekend in Colossians. And linking with it from the commonality of the typology of the good land, which of course we emphasized from Colossians 1.12, the God allotted portion. Linking with it what we've recently had in our crystallization studies of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Of course, I realize we're just now getting into more of the content and substance of Deuteronomy. But in both of these books, both of these books, God's people are ready to access and are entering into something that lies before them, the promised good land. And this promised good land represents the ultimate experience of Christ. And there are certain aspects of the preparatory actions and move that give us a way to consider how important our involvement 
is in the service of the church and in our care for, for the younger ones. So maybe I'll just uh, start and then um, try to consider as we touch on some of these points, whether you have questions, wonderings, additional observations that we could add to this to make it more full and rich from your perspective. That'd be very good. So our little handout says, uh, has a title, Preparing and Encouraging the Upcoming Generation to Fully Access the Enjoyment of the All-Extensive Christ as Revealed in Colossians. So the first point says, uh, as a quote from Brother Lee, you remember the tender moment when we received this letter from Brother Lee, and he informed us that he had very little time left. Some year and a half before, he wrote a similar letter to the Saints in the Lord's Recovery and decided not to send it. Although he knew that he'd been told by his doctors he had an estimated amount of time to live, he knew that he didn't have much time. And his first thought was, let me let the saints know so that they can pray. The Lord touched him that it was better for a few brothers to know and them to pray and the remainder of the saints in the churches to not be unsettled and not be disturbed or upset. And so he withheld his initial letter, did not send it. But then at this point in March of 1997, he could no longer stand, he could no longer sit, he could no longer raise his hand to feed himself. He was profoundly weak and he wanted there to be a personal communi communication from his heart to the saints mm -hmm. to let them know of his situation. And so you'll remember, I think, the letter from Brother Lee dated March 23rd, 1997 to all the churches in the Lord's recovery. And you probably have a copy of that. If you don't, you can surely ask for one. Uh, you know, I, I have a copy I can send to you. Uh, <clears throat> in which, in which he, he mentioned that he honors and trusts the Lord's sovereignty in his no longer being able to continue in the fight. But he said, the Lord is going to take us on. Higher, higher. And we're going to ascend level by level until we reach the goal, until we're all beings in the new Jerusalem, not just in the eternal age, but to close this age. And then he said these words, I do not know how much the Lord would have me in this struggle. But he did know that it wasn't very long. Then he said, but I do know that your participation in this struggle means a lot. So he wanted to encourage us not to, not to let our guard down, not to, not to <clears throat> be lax, but to continue the struggle. 
to pick up, as the brothers have said, to carry, to carry the baton forward, to receive it and to carry the baton forward. And so I extracted this, just hoping that it would be of encouragement that brothers and sisters, regardless of our age here and looking around, um, none of us are that old. Um, we've got a lot of time left to serve, to contribute, to endeavor in this struggle. And so we should realize that our um, participation in it means a lot. Now, the succeeding points are all from the book of Numbers. And Numbers is uh, what would be considered, considered a, a book um, not attended to frequently by Christians, uh, left somewhat obscure in commentary and in study. Um, it's the book of Numbers. <laughs> uh, but we saw in the Lord's recovery when the Lord crystallized it, and we went back and remembered all that Brother Lee spoke when he did the life study. Oh, this book. This book is incredibly rich. And there's, there are a lot of lessons here that um, correspond to the burden for our pressing on to the full experience of Christ. So the first of these series of, of points is in Roman numeral two, and it refers to glorious implications. The glorious implications of the renumbering of God's people and their readiness to enter the good land. So the points here, <clears throat> the glorious implication is that late in the book of Numbers, actually, right after the recording, or in the midst of the recording of so many failures, there was the renumbering of God's people. And now they were being renumbered not to fight in the army. They were being renumbered to have a portion in the good land. They were now ready to enter in. They'd been perfected, equipped, and they could, they could, they could go in and take the land. This, is in, this renumbering is in Numbers 26, and it corresponds to Moses' words to them later in Numbers and in the entire book of Deuteronomy. And so the fact that they were, the fact that they were ready to go in while their parents were not ready or had earlier not been ready implies that they were perfected. They were helped. They were conditioned to be ready, and the former deficits and the former problems had been overcome, resolved, and we're in the past now. This implies that their fathers, they may have had some problems, but they received perfecting words, and they perfected those, those, that, that generation. And they were ready to go. And this is glorious. But the implied perfecting work is what lies before us now. We need to, we need to be available to help, help the, uh, the young ones in this way. So in Numbers 26.2, it makes special reference 
to the fact that this renumbering of Israel was according to their father's houses, which makes note that they were there as family units and they were there getting the benefiting from the perfecting of the previous generation. So the footnote here indicates that this renumbering was for the inheriting of the good land. And Deuteronomy 1.1, of course, just refers to the fact that Moses also now was able to open the book of Deuteronomy and speak to them thoroughly because they were ready. They already had been prepared. The next point says that if we're going to help the, help the next generation, we can benefit by observing and appreciating the heart of Moses. Now, this isn't saying that we're Moses, but it is saying that we can have the heart of Moses. And the heart of Moses was one that he did not care for himself. He did not care for whether he got anything, whether he entered in. Well, I wouldn't say he didn't care whether he would enter in, but he was not bothered by the fact that he was told he would not enter in. His interests were absolutely on the next generation and their entering in. So these verses here, Deuteronomy 33.1, identifies Moses as the man of God, this particular title, also used in Joshua 14. And as a man of God, he was a blessing one. So our aspiration is to be those who bless the upcoming generation. This was his heart. Now, the, the key verses here, though, are the next two. Numbers 27, 13 says, this is Jehovah speaking to Moses. And when you have seen it, you shall be also, you also shall be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. So Moses was taken to the mount, Mount Pisgah, from where the entire good land could be viewed. And Jehovah took him there, showed him the good land, and told him and informed him, you will not go in. But because of my appreciation of you, I bring you here to see it. And he was told who would, who would be his replacement. He was told that he would die soon. And then his response was in verse 16. Here Moses responds to Jehovah. Moses says, let Jehovah, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the assembly. Brother Lee points out here that in Moses' response, you see his heart. He didn't say, as he did later in, in uh, Deuteronomy in the early chapters, Jehovah, could you reconsider, please, and let, let me go in after all? He didn't, he didn't say anything about himself. He said, Jehovah, what about the people? What about their entering in? Jehovah, Father of the spirits of all flesh, appoint someone to take care of them and pick up, pick up on their behalf so that they can enter in. This was the heart of Moses, and this is the heart that we need to have. So then regarding him, Moses, Jehovah, told Moses, and you shall put some of your honor upon him. Some versions say you'll put some of your majesty 
on him. What was his honor? His honor was the fact that he had been afforded an opportunity to bear responsibility and to lead God's people, care for them, and take them toward God's goal. This was the honor that Moses had. So likewise, when we take care of the young people, we take the benefit of our experience, what the Lord's given us, and this majestic thing that we have, that among so many people, we are those who have been honored to be in a position to handle these things, to possess these things, and now to enrich the upcoming generation with these things. This is our, this is our majesty. This is our honor. And when we perfect the young ones, we place our honor upon them making them honorable, and making them able to take care of others. The next point is quite striking to me. Roman number four says, profiting the upcoming generation, the implications of Numbers chapter 15. In um, explaining this, <clears throat> the implications of number, Numbers chapter 15, I mentioned someone, well, the importance here is that Numbers 15 is between Numbers 14 and Numbers 16. <laughs> and the person I was talking to was very impressed. <laughs> with a, <laughs> I said, oh, really? <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, because of its implications, Numbers chapter 15 stands as one of the most striking chapters in the entire Bible. So what are the implications? Numbers is a chronicle, a historic record, a chronologic proceeding of what transpired with Israel from the time they left Sinai, Mount Horeb, eventually until they came back to the border of the good land and were ready to enter in. So in general, it's a chronologic record, although there are gaps in the record, especially in the 40 years of 38 years of wandering. It doesn't describe 38 years worth of wandering. But um, Brother Lee says, when in numbers, there's something that has nothing to do with the chronology and does not contribute to an understanding of the record and is completely out of context and has nothing to do with the train of thought that you should stop and realize there's something here. And Brother, Brother Lee calls this one of many very significant insertions in the record in numbers. And so in a sense, you could just connect Numbers chapter 14 with Numbers chapter 16, and the record would be reasonable and continuous. But Numbers chapter 15 is inserted. So what is chapter 14 and what is chapter 16 of Numbers? Well, you remember that in chapters 13 and culminating in chapter 14 is the cataclysmic failure of God's people that challenges us at this very moment. And that is that 
they had, they had taken the 11-day trip from Mount Horeb to the good land. 11 days to Kadesh Barnea. 11 days. That's all it had to take them was 11 days. Maybe more. Than, maybe they'd have to stop and rest and water their livestock or eat something. And, but it's 11 days journey according to Deuteronomy from Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. 11 days. So they make it there in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And then they say, <clears throat> or it is, it is said, let's send in the spies to spy out the land and see what kind of land it is and whether we're going in or not. Now, what kind of question was that? They were called, as we saw in the conference, Exodus 3.8, they were called out of Egypt to that good land. They'd seen miracle after miracle after miracle. It had been affirmed to them again and again and again. Now they get there and they say, Let's send in some spies and check it out and see if we really want to do this. And, of course, they did send in the spies. Now, parenthetically, you remember that in the record in Numbers chapter 13, it says Jehovah said to them, send in the spies. And then in Deuteronomy chapters 1 and 2, it says, it says that the children, Moses told them, you insisted on sending in spies. So... There's no vindication here on the part of the divine being in writing, in writing the record. He didn't, in numbers, say, well, they insisted, so I said, okay. It just says, Jehovah said, send in spies. But you put these two portions together, and you realize we can compromise God's will by our insistence on what we want. And so Jehovah had no intention and this was according to Moses in Deuteronomy, this was ob objectionable to Jehovah, but he, he assented, he was willing, and they sent in the 12 spies, and of course the results were terrible. The results were they saw how rich the land was and testified of it, but they saw that there were giants there. Saints, do you think there are giants facing us in the entry into the experience of the all-inclusive Christ? Sure there are. There are giants. And those giants are in our own being. Amen. Those are the giants that we face. And they quivered and retracted and considered themselves as grasshoppers before these giants that they were facing. And they said, Jehovah, why have you taken us out of Egypt and brought us here to perish by being sent into this good land? And so he says, because you've murmured this way. And as you know, both in Psalms and in Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, it says, because of the hardness of their heart and the putting away of their faith, he swore, you will not enter in to the rest. You know? So, this was, this was, this was their failure. And just, just like we would be, you'll remember what happened after that. So Jehovah said, okay, you don't want to go in, you don't want to enter in? Okay, take this route. So 
rather than taking that route, they said, well, okay, Jehovah, we'll go in after all. Jehovah says, don't go in. They say, no, we're going in. So they go in, and they get decimated. <laughs> so there's some lessons here, aren't there, saints? Mainly, mainly, all they had to do was go in. So, Brother Lee says in the life study, don't ask questions. Just go for the all-inclusive Christ. Amen. Go for the experience of the all-inclusive Christ. Amen. Well, then, that's chapter 14. Then chapter 16. Chapter 16 is a famous chapter. can be identified by a particular name. What name do you think of when you hear number 16? Korah. Yes. So chapter 16 is on Korah's rebellion. Korah and his group of 250 rebel. And as a result, um, God's people suffer three supernatural signs of judgment, a plague in which tens of thousands of them, them die, and eventually, it's only, only the prayer of Moses and God's mercy that stops the plague. And, but um, the loss was tremendous. So between these two, we have chapter 15. So what is the significance of chapter 15 in the Bible and for us tonight? The insertion of Numbers chapter 15 is to indicate how you can avoid failing to enter into the good land and losing your faith and having to, having, having to wander in the wilderness. It's also the answer to how you can be kept from the rebellion that's in us as a seed sown in all of us and that is common characteristic of all of us that, will, that offers, that, that, that promises to destroy our present and our future. You have Numbers 15. So what is Numbers 15? So Numbers 15, so at the end, at the, at the end of Numbers 14 it says, Jehovah says to the people, you will not go in. Then Numbers 15, chapter, verses 1 and 2. I think you have the verse there on your, on your handout. It says, when you go in, sorry, <laughs> when you go in, so is, yeah. should that not catch our attention? Yeah. Yeah. He says, you're not going in. And then he says, when you go in, who's he talking to? He's talking to the same people that he told would not go in. So who's going to go in? This shows, this shows that his word to them, spoken in chapter 15, was not for them. You know who it was for? Yeah. This is a, there's a twofold answer to that question. It was for the next generation, many of whom were not even born yet. And it was for coming people is for us. Numbers 15 is for us. Okay, so 
How are we going to perfect the next generation? The perfecting that we render is in the principle of Numbers chapter 15. And Numbers chapter 15 has three main constituents. Under, under 4, <clears throat> B, C, and D. And saints, I'm just going to encapsulate this. There's actually much, much more here than this. But there are three things here. One is there are some indications regarding the importance of the offerings and what they are supposed to do with the offerings. Number two, there are some indicators related to the Sabbath and the observation of the Sabbath. And number three, there were observations related to how people are to dress. Now, are you clear what the message is? Yeah. So these three taken together point to the all-extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians. Corresponds. Corresponds. So these three together, taken together, indicate that when we enter into the good land, the experience of Christ, what we do there is we take Christ as everything, we live him. And this takes care of everything. So how is this? Of course, this section in the life study is marvelous. What do the offerings mean? The offerings, in principle, are an acknowledgment, are man's acknowledgment. In type in the Old Testament, and in realization for us in the New Testament, that we're nothing. That we can do nothing. But, that we realize that we have someone who is everything and who has done everything. Amen. So, yes, there was the burnt offering. Yes, there was the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, then the supplemental offerings. You put these all together and they indicate, they indicate everything related to the human lot, the human need. And when the Israelite came and put his hands on this offering and identified with it, he was saying, I am not that which is about to meet my need. I am not that, but I'm identifying with that. By identifying with that, I'm taking that, and it's meeting my need, whether it was a sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, or the meal offering. So, strictly speaking, this, this little this indication was this is what it takes to enter into the good land. So how do we need to help the other people? We need to help them to realize that, that their future is the Lord's. And they should see their future in the Lord. And for their future, they should trust the Lord. This has a lot to do with how a young person is helped to choose their spouse. Is their spouse a, a matter of human compatibility, uh, physical outward attractiveness, being positioned materially? As you know, a young person who 
is interested in those things and attracted by those things is headed for a disastrous complication if that's what they're using as their criterion. So what we need to do when <clears throat> we're involved with a young person who would like to seek our counsel, we have to help them to realize that God has prepared for them a spouse. It's not merely that they're searching through innumerable people and trying to find the right one. God has prepared one for them. We'll bring that one to them. We'll make this one known to them. And that their evaluation of this one has to be according to the one who brought her or him to them. And with a view that their spouse is to be chosen with Christ in view, Amen. with his interests in view. And this is how we choose a spouse. This is what's implied here in the implication regarding the offerings. We are nothing. We can do nothing. We need to depend upon and lay hold of and access the one who is everything to us. Is this not the revelation that we looked at this, saw this weekend from Colossians. Now, it mentions here the specific combination of ordained offerings. Uh, the emphasis in this, in this chapter does include specific offerings. It emphasizes the burnt offering. So we need to realize that what we need especially is we need to take Christ breath by breath so that we can have him as our way to be for him. Amen. That we need him absolutely. And when we lay hold of him, we take him absolutely and become him absolutely, are one with him absolutely. This allows us to have a different kind of living. This is the burnt offering. And the burnt offering then is mentioned in continuity with the peace offering. When we have the disposition and the experience of the burnt offering, it brings us a life at rest where the whirls of questions, of complications, of wonderings, of difficulties, stills. And you realize everything is okay. Everything is okay. When we have this living depending upon and set on Christ himself, we realize, we realize we don't need to be unsettled by things. We can be, we can be at peace. There's the emphasis, there's the emphasis on <clears throat> the oil being added and, and on the, uh, the wine for the, uh, the wine for the uh, drink offering, the heave offering, and I'll just refer you to the life study for that. Of um, particular note is um, Brother Lee's comment on the importance of the heave offering in Numbers chapter 18. I'd like to refer you to that. The experiential indications regarding the heave offering in the life study of Numbers chapter 18. So we need to help our young people if they're not going to be those that are that wander for 38 years and then die in the wilderness. 
we need to be those who, who realize they need a life of taking Christ as everything, as the offerings. The offerings also imply, as you know, an intention to enter into a new realm of living. So the simple typo typology of Exodus, of the tabernacle, indicates that, <clears throat> that Christ, as the embodied God signified by the ark, is enlarged into a realm in which we live and serve. So the tabernacle signifies a realm, which is Christ himself, in which we live and serve. For the priest to enter in there and to live and to serve, he had a life of the offerings. And his partaking of the offerings gave him the privileged entry. For us, it's this life of the offerings that give us a way to enter into Christ, to live in him in the way that we covered this, this weekend. Now, the point C, the keeping of the Sabbath, is the second item mentioned, the second inclusion in, in chapter 15 of Numbers, and indicates that we need to be very careful to remain at rest, to observe rest. And to link this to our message this morning, if we're going to live in the principle of the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest, this is to acknowledge that from the very beginning of our Christian life, we had everything, and everything was done for us. Amen. So as you know, Adam, when he was created at the end of the sixth day, his early conscious awareness was being alive and beginning everything on the Sabbath day, the day of rest. This indicates that for us, we are to have our entire living, as, as by the ordinance in Numbers 15, our entire living in Christ, experiencing him as the good land, is to be a time of rest in which we no longer take the resources of our natural makeup, our fleshly uh, endeavors, and simply remain accessing what we've had from the beginning, the enjoyment of Christ in our mingled spirit. And then point C, or point D, the third, the third point is the point of the clothing. <clears throat> now clothing, of course, is something important for the young people. They need to, they need to have a certain kind of clothing, right, to um, carry themselves properly as God's people in a stormy society in which clothing is, tends to be a sign of rebellion, of uh, self-exposure or fleshly exposure, and of making statements of one kind or another. To have a kind of dignified, shame-fast, sober covering and clothing that befits the dignity of the station that we have as believers in the Lord's recovery. And so our young people need to be reminded when they're affected by the current of the age that, you know, and we need discretion as to how to do this, but we need, we need to help them to realize they need a certain, they should have a certain kind of carriage living as expressed by their dress 
that matches, that matches the important testimony that we're keeping. And we also, as the older ones, need to carry ourselves in the way of our dress, in a way that befits the importance of our role as experienced ones in the Lord's recovery who have ground to speak to the young people about this matter if necessary. So this is an important point now. But that's not the point in Numbers 15. The point in Numbers 15 is that our clothing is our testimony representing our living. And that if we're a person who has a life of the offerings, that is a life that acknowledges that we are nothing and that we will access and take Christ as our everything, and that we remain at rest accessing what we've had from the beginning and living it out without unnecessary detours and delays, that we will have a kind of living that is proper and matches the Christ in whom we're living. So you'll remember there's some important points about this uh, garment that God's people are supposed to wear. So this garment is described as having a fringe, having adornment with tassels. So the tassels and the fringe are actually the translation, I believe, of the same Hebrew word. And it's probably more like a fringe going all the way around. And the fringe was heavenly blue. And this means that the living of God's people is to be with a heavenly testimony, befitting the fact that they're pursuing the experience of Christ. Now, in Numbers chapter 9, and I think the, the verse reference is there for you. No, I'm sorry. In Matthew chapter 9, and the verse reference is there for you, and the cross reference is in the recovery version, of course. The Lord wore this, this garment. Fulfilling this ordinance in Numbers chapter 15, the Lord wore this garment. And when the hemorrhaging woman besought the Lord for him, besought the Lord to touch him, to touch him, you remember he, he noted that someone touched his garment at the fringe, touched the heavenly expression in his living, and was instantly healed of the hemorrhage. And what those around us need and what the young people need when they see us is they need to see a living that is heavenly. And when they see that heavenly living, want it, and touch it, they are healed. So actually, as we try to help the young people with various areas of, of concern, it may not be that much that we sit them down and give them a talk. It's actually much more that we care for them. We shepherd them. We open our heart to them. And then we let them watch our living, which has a blue fringe, a heavenly testimony. They touch that heavenly testimony, and they're healed. Now, I may not have included the verse here. I. Oh, yes, I think so. I'll just read the last sentence of it to you. This is uh, Numbers 15:39. And it shall be a fringe to you, so that when you see it, 
you will remember all the commandments of Jehovah and do them so that you do not seek after your own heart and your own eyes according to which you committed fornication. So he's speaking here to the generation who's not going to enter in, telling them how the ones who enter in have to behave, and they have to behave in a way that is not the way they behaved in fornication. Now, what is fornication here? Fornication here, of course, refers, of course, they need to have marital fidelity. But fornication here refers to their relationship with him. It refers to their unfaithfulness to him. Referring again to the fact that what's going, what is to happen on, in the good land is the consummation of a perfectly faithful and reciprocal relationship of affection. Yes, a spousal relationship between God and his people. That is to happen as we intercourse with him and, are, and live in him. And this is a living without fornication. So I hope you get the point here. There, through the Old Testament, especially through the Pentateuch and, and the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, especially, it refers to God's people's unfaithfulness in their relationship to him as their fornication, which polluted the good land and excluded them from it. So if we want to be on the good land of the all-inclusive Christ, the first thing is our faithfulness to him in intended relationship, which is not of a fraternal quality, but is a, of a spousal quality. So this should cause us to love him. Amen. Now, just an additional point that you don't, don't have here is that when this ordinance is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 9, and the Lord is pictured there with his garment with the blue, heavenly blue fringe, and the woman is healed, that is the second mention of the garment in Matthew chapter 9. And the first mention earlier in the chapter, it indicates that the Lord is our bridegroom. And it mentions he's bringing forth a new garment. So the bridegroom bring forth a new garment, followed by the revelation of the garment with the fringe later in the chapter, indicates that Numbers is talking about a garment, a living, which is heavenly, which heals, and which involves our intimate and affectionate relationship with the Lord. Wonderful. Another wonderful point. So, these three things point to a living. And how are we going to help our the upcoming generation to attain to and have this kind have this kind of kind of living? Well, for sure, the way they have this kind of living is they've got to know it's feasible. They've got to see it. It's got to be patterned. Who's going to pattern it? It's for us, huh? Let's see. Okay. So, again, Moses was perfecting the younger generation, some of them not even born yet, by telling those who had all kinds of failures, all kinds of shortages, 
what it was going to take. And they picked it up. And both with their blessing words and through their mistakes, they taught the younger generation so that by the time we get to Numbers chapter 26, they're ready to go in. This shows the importance of our role. Now, point five says, profiting the upcoming generation, the implications of Numbers chapter 18. Now, Numbers chapter 18 is a marvelous chapter. This chapter is on the priesthood of gift. One of the most striking phrases for a lover of the Lord, a seeker of the Lord, a serving one of the Lord, is to realize that the New Testament serving ones are priests. And all the New Testament believers are intended to be priests who would serve him. And to serve him as a priest is the highest privilege and the unspeakable uh, honor that one can have. And Numbers chapter 18 speaks about how this is unexceeded. There's nothing greater. And so he shamed those. He shamed those who rebelled and who were ambitious for other things in chapter 16 with a presentation of how glorious the priesthood is in chapter 18. And so in 18, is it 7? Chapter 18, 7. Verse 7 it says, I give you the priesthood as a service of gift. So saints, is our function in serving the Lord in his recovery, is it fading? Is it waning? Is it becoming less? Only in society should that be true. Our service, our avidity to serve, our, our disposition to serve, our wanting to serve should increase year by year, should strengthen year by year. And we should be those who take the lead in the service. We may not be quite as strong, but we can be there with our prayer. We can be there with our presence. We can be seen by the younger ones, and by being seen by the younger ones, encourage them that they should, they should serve as we have a heart to serve. And we should realize this is a service of gift. And of course here, yes, priesthood does refer to the intrinsic aspects of our service to the intrinsic aspects of our service. A priest is one who lives in the holiest of all, who handles the things of God most intimately. It refers especially to our prayer, to our contact with the Lord and our spirit, to our, our caring for our mingling with him. These are the priestly functions. But one of the critical revelations in the book of Numbers is the relationship between the priesthood the priest and the Levites, the priesthood and the Levitical service as, it, as applied to the New Testament believers. So there in, in Numbers chapter 18 it says, and your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, bring near with you so that they may be joined to you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony. So, the Levites were to come to minister to the priests. And elsewhere in the chapter it says, I give you the Levites as another gift. 
I give the Levites to you as a gift. They will serve you. They will minister to you. Now, it's amazing that in a repetitive fashion, five times in the book of Numbers, there's a particular mentioning of the Levites and their importance, the importance of their service, indicating again how important our service is, is today. But in Numbers chapters 3 and 4, which is the first of these mentionings, it points out again that the Levites were to come and to serve the priests and to give themselves to the priests, to be under the priest's guidance. Now, what Brother Lee says about this is spectacular. Spectacular. So, how can we help the, the younger ones? Number one, we help them, firstly, by giving ourselves to serve. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We present ourselves to serve as, living, as a living sacrifice. But as we serve, we fulfill the typology of the relationship between the priests and the Levites in the book of Numbers. And you may remember this, but this is, this is incredible. That for a New Testament believer, the Levites and the priests in their functions and as persons are merged into one. So every New Testament believer is both a priest and a Levite. And for the two to be merged into one means that the supervision in the Old Testament age that the priest rendered to the Levites now is brought into the experience of the New Testament believer. And they, in their being, supervise their Levitical function with the priestly view. And so once again, in them, the Levites serve their heart to be a priest. What does this mean? This means that our primary service in the church is to do everything in spirit, touching the Lord, join to him, join to him. And our Levitical service just gives us the proper place, the proper setting to be able to demonstrate and live out this kind of living as we serve and causes our service not to be merely outward, but for it to be merged with priestly significance and realization. Here is the secret to our failure in the God-ordained way to meet and serve. If you move in the circles of the fellowship in the church life, You'll encounter persons who say, in places that say, we've endeavored in a God-ordained way with the gospel, with the home meetings, the group meetings, the prophesying. And we make some progress, but we just realize we haven't made that much progress. Our gospel work is disappointing. Our group meetings aren't vital as they should be. Our prophesying is better than it used to be, but it's not what it could be. And you sense the morale isn't so much there. 
then someone will say, well, Brother Lee told us it would take us 50 years, or, or that it could take us 50 years. Well, so now it's been 20-some. They say, well, not much progress for 20 years. Well, actually, saints, actually, there has been a lot of progress. And so I, I'm speaking this in way of encouragement. But to the degree that the progress has lagged and, to the, and where we have not had success is because we missed this point. We missed this point. And we conducted the God-ordained way as a Levitical service. And we followed and did faithfully what we knew to do. Two nights a week, we'd go out and preach and contact people at their doors. We'd meet every week in our group. We'd pray for our new ones. We'd go see them in our homes. We'd prepare a prophecy every Lord's Day. And we'd do it out of duty. We'd do it out of diligence. We'd do it repetitively. Make some human progress, but not that much out of the fuel, of the basis of the priestly supply. So everything in the God-ordained way has to be a married service, has to be a merged service, has to be a Levitical service carried out under the priestly supervision, under the priestly view. The Levite, the, Levite, the practical service, has to be given as a gift to the practical to the priestly service, offered to minister to the, to the priestly service so the priestly service can, can carry out the needed thing, which is for people to serve in spirit, overflowing, taking him as the resource, living on him as the good land as we serve and realizing that the service is just the opportunity, the setting where this is carried out and expressed and demonstrated. And so this little, little point, if missed, can result in disillusionment and lack of progress. So we need to, number one, serve, and number two, we need to serve according to the picture in the book of Numbers where the Levitical, Levitical service and the priestly function are merged together. <laughs> Nextly, how do we how do we profit the this is point six, how do we profit the upcoming generation? The implications of Numbers chapter 28. So this is very similar to last night's message. Very similar to last night's last night's message. An incredible revelation where there's a direct word, not from Moses, but from Jehovah, saying, what's it going to be like in the good land? What, would you, what should you be? What should you do in the good land? Says that you should feed me. You remember this famous verse, Numbers 28-2. Please don't not feed me. Give me, my, give me my food. Yes, so for God to say give me my food implies that he needs to take something in. He need, he's got a mouth. He needs to eat. He needs to eat. So what is tantalizing to him? What does he enjoy eating? Well, Numbers 28 is another extremely striking chapter in the whole Bible. 
which says that, I might have the verse here for you. Yeah, be careful to present it to me at the appointed time. And I've summarized the entire chapter by saying, a continual burnt offering. Now, as I think I mentioned during the conference, Numbers chapter 6, no, sorry, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 9 and 12, referring to the, to, the, to the burnt offering, indicates that it is to burn continually. It's to be offered continually. Not a small point, right? Indicating the kind of living we should have, a living given to the Lord in absoluteness, with, without interruption. This runs parallel, strikingly, with our fellowship this weekend. So this is the law of the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 6. When it comes to Leviticus chapter 20, let me just paraphrase. This is what Jehovah says. I'm hungry at night, so please feed me at night. Offer a burnt offering, which, by the way, is continual. All through the night until morning. Then he says, Feed me, a, feed me in the morning. <laughs> offer burnt offering also in the morning. And that burnt offering is to be burning continually until night. And do that not when you feel like it. Do that every day. 365 days of the year. Do that every day. Then see if this reminds you of Colossians 2.16, do that every day. Then he says, also do that every week. Also do that every month. Also do that every year. Sound familiar? Does that match Colossians 2.16? But, he says, when it comes to the seventh day, and it's time for you to offer something to me every week, don't just offer to me for that week the burnt offering you offer every day, but make it a lot bigger. I forgot how many times bigger, but quite a bit bigger. And when you offer that bigger thing to me on the seventh day, seventh day or eighth day, probably no seventh day, on the, on the seventh day, also offer to me what's due that day, the seventh day. Don't forget that seventh day portion, but add on top of it the offering for that week. And then when it's day 30, a monthly offering, which is much bigger than the weekly offering, burnt offering, not sin offering, not peace offering, it's all the burnt offering. It's burnt offering. So an enlarged one, but when you do that, also do the one for that week, also do the one for that day. Then when it's the end of the year, a super big one. <laughs> but also the one, but in that entire weekly feast, every day of that feast, the big one, plus the month one, plus the week one, plus the day one, every day of that feast. So what is this? This is a lovely picture of living Christ with the realization of taking him as the reality of all and that God is hungry for this. Amen. So this, this living complements the living 
signified by the garment with the blue fringe and shows that we have concern for him. We have concern for his needs. That he would be satisfied. That he would have a way. And that we realize that nothing can satisfy him but us. As the brother said last night, <clears throat> we need him, but he needs us. So for the young people to see us aspiring to live this way, to live a life as presented by Numbers chapter 20 is, is, is wonderful. Then, and I'll, I'll finish up in the next couple minutes. Then, profiting the upcoming generation, the implications of Numbers chapter 31. Anyone, anyone remember what chapter 31 of Numbers is about? Well, you remember that um, this is toward the end of the 38 years of wandering. It's toward the end. They wandered for 38 years. They're approaching the good land again. And they've, they've even now encountered some enemies and they've had some success. They've had at least two military victories, probably more. But there's one big enemy there. The implication is that there was a horde, an exceedingly large army or military force of the people, the Midianites. And of course, the Midianites have certain significance, actually have a lot of significance in terms of they, the Midianites were an amalgamation in typology of every satanic and negative thing that you could put together. And there was a horde of them between God's people and the good land. So Jehovah says, or must have told Moses, encounter them. Go meet them. And so here's what happened. So Moses says, okay, each one of the 12 tribes give 1,000 men, 1,000 soldiers, making a total military force of 12,000. Now, we're not given a number of how many Midianites there are, but some thousands. And so Moses is only going to send 12,000. Why would he do that? Have you ever wondered about this? Why would he only send 12,000? He had a lot more than that to send. Only sent 12,000. Not only that, but do you remember who he sent to lead the army of 12,000? 12, he sent Phineas. Do you remember who Phineas was? Yeah. Yeah, Phineas was a priest. So we had the priest leading the 12,000. And so he armed Phineas, not with a weapon, but with vessels. And he sent, so Moses 
sends Phineas with vessels leading a very small contingency of 12,000 men against this horde of Midianites who must have been the most ferocious. Again, in typology, Satan endued people. So guess what happened? So this, this group of 12,000 goes against Midian, defeats them all, not only defeats them all, but yes, kills them all. All, 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 kills them all. And in the verse reference you have there, it says, they took a census afterwards, and of those 12,000, no casualties. Zero. Zero casualties. So what does this have to do? What does this have to do with our helping the young people? So Brother Lee says, had they gone up against the Midianites 40 years before, there would have been a lot of opinions. There would have been a lot of opinions. Moses, what are you doing? I'm one of those 12,000. You're only going to send me with 12,000 others? I'm not going unless you send everybody. Or, Moses, how about you have some kind of sophistication to this? Set a decoy over here and send the 12,000 around this way or do something so they've got a better chance. They're overwhelmingly outnumbered. How are they going to survive? But Brother Lee's point is that they had been perfected by this time. Now they were genuinely ready to go in. And their life was one that was such that they were different people, depending upon him, looking to him, involved with him, and there was no opinion. And there was absolute one accord. So the blessing was there. They defeated the enemy and zero casualties. So the lesson is that young people can look at us and they can realize that we don't have opinions. We don't make issues. We stand together in oneness based upon our common ground and the mingled spirit. We trust the leadership. We follow the direction. And we don't have opinions. And as we're this way, this is a telling lesson to the upcoming generation that prepares them to enter into and to access the good land. Then the final point is claiming the principle of Caleb. And the principle of Caleb, of course, in these verses that are well known to you is that Caleb himself declared that when he was 80, he was as strong as he was when he was 40. And he had no dissipation, no, no loss of strength, and no loss of burden. And so, saints, we should claim this promise. That we, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 16, are being renewed inwardly day by day. We're getting clearer. We're getting stronger. We're getting more given. And we also are taking care of our well-being, taking care of our health, so that we can be with the Lord for his interest as long as possible, 
to extend our days on the earth, to be useful and to be factors in the Lord's recovery, caring for the young people. But especially, we should realize that Caleb is a type. Caleb is a type. Not only a type in his having another spirit, another kind of spirit, he's a type in that way, but he's a type in one who, who was so one with the Lord that his, his strength did not wane. We should expect this, and we should cooperate with this, cooperate with this in our practice of life, cooperate with this in our involvement in the church life, and cooperate with this in our lifestyle habits, in our getting exercise, how we eat, getting enough rest for the sake of our health and our longevity, getting necessary medical consultation, all these things. So, saints, um, this is just to uh, encourage us that our participation means a lot. Amen. He's got us in this struggle. Amen. We don't know how long we're in this struggle, but we're in it, and our participation means a lot. So these points from Numbers hopefully give some ground to um, consider how we can uh, encourage the younger ones to enter into the fellowship of this weekend, the experience of the all-inclusive extensive Christ in Colossians, and help them to be ones that are ready to early in their lifespan enter into the all-inclusive Christ as the good land Amen. in their experience and bring the Lord back. Well, brothers, I don't know, uh, would you like to have questions and responses, or would you like to have uh, uh, fellowship with the saints? Uh, saints, would anyone like to offer a question? Not necessarily just for me, but for... Yes, Sandy. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> so the reason I put here for the sake of others is that... Um, Rick, could you repeat the question? Yes. In Roman numeral 4.C, Sandy asked, why is it that where it says the keeping of the Sabbath, a living strictly at rest for the sake of others... Uh, as one who is burdened for the upcoming generation uh, in the principle of Ephesians chapter 3 and the stewardship given to me for you, we realize that our blessed privilege to serve is a blessing to us. It's an honor to us, but it's for them. And the lessons are for them. So um, the principle of the Sabbath, which is to... <coughs> keep ourselves from living in our natural life, to guard ourselves from living in our natural life. This is the Sabbath. And to realize that everything's been provided for us, and we have nothing to do except come back to what we had from the beginning and access it. Now, so for us to um, have the realization that if we lack in this, we have not only personal loss, but we shortchange those who are serving because they can't appreciate from us the necessary example. That was the reason.
Yes, Jack. Oh, yeah. Jack. Early on in the message, you mentioned how there's a feeling among the young that there's not that much us older ones have to offer. So I'm wondering if you had some practical fellowship that as older ones we could be perfected in how to shepherd, how to talk to the young ones, for example. Young ones, when I've been with them, I love to talk and I love to tell stories, but they're an instant society and they really don't want to hear long stories. That's just an example. Do you have any other fellowship that yeah. could lessen the gap? Yes. Well, these realizations that the young people are impatient and, and uh, they, they're stimulation oriented and they want new experiences and they want excitement and so on. This is a good, these realizations of the characteristics of the, of our upcoming generation are helpful for us to be able to um, relate to them. But the basic factor is the one thing. The basic factor is the one thing. Um, related to this, Brother Menor has encouraged us to read about the, is it the Z generation or the Generation Z? And to understand them and, um, well, th this is good for our realization and, and for our preparation, but how we respond to them basically is the one thing. So, Jack, it isn't that the stories aren't beneficial, but who, who are you when you're telling the stories? What do they see when they see you telling the stories and when they hear the stories that you tell? Um, this is the basic thing. So what we had this weekend, the experience of the extensive Christ in Colossians, is what our young people need. There's Generation Z, and maybe there'll be Generation Z, uh, Z1, Z2, Z3. They'll have, they'll have a new combination of phenomena and affinities and interests, and if, if the Lord delays. But uh, what they what they need <coughs> is they need to see someone captivated by the Lord, Amen. overtaken by the Lord, having no other interest or involvement or veering toward other things. And that that flavor comes through in the story that you tell. And, and the story you tell in its content and its brevity or length is also determined by the priestly supervision. And, and um, the answer for our young generation isn't figuring out the formula that's methodically correct for them. But it's to realize that there's one potent re reagent in the universe, and that is the lived out Christ. Amen. That is the emanated Christ, the shining, radiant Christ coming out of our enjoyment, our experience, and coming out of what we've, what we've gleaned 
um, as, we, as we live in, in these practical ways of placing us in the sphere of Christ for our living and holding him preeminent in our personal universe and taking him as the reality of every positive thing and every shadow. As, as we do this, perfect this, and get better at this, all in and within a sense of uh, our romantic espousal to him, they'll get the help. If we come up with another suggestion, then uh, it might be counterproductive. It might diffuse or distract from this principle. This was Brother Lee's principle. Yes, how this is lived out is different in every case, but how it is lived out is not pre-formulated, is not according to a protocol that we design for taking care of young people. It's how the Lord dynamically interacts with us as we're with them and he gives us words, gives us expression, gives us a countenance that causes them to know we care. Uh, hi, bro, uh, Brother Rick. Um, yes, Jose. Um, I have a question. Hola, uh, querido hermano. Hola, mi hermano. <laughs> uh, um, I know you mentioned like three or four times about the dealing with our health issues. Yes. Uh, well, you know, um, uh, since we're in the church life, we have a lot of law fees, and I know I have a lot of young people <laughs> coming into our house. And uh, I realized, you know, uh, uh, when I came to the church life, uh, uh, a lot of saints left because of uh, the health issues. Um, um, they, they died for the health issues. And um, how you encounter this situation and the church life, uh, how you... Uh, um, not to be legalist uh, in this in this situation of the food with the young people. Uh, Very good. Um, I don't know, you know. Uh, I know they call me the organic guy, but <laughs> but, but I don't want to be legalist, you know. Uh, yes. I love the young people. I love to take care of the young people, but um, uh, I don't want to be. Uh, you know, dividing all legalists and this kind of situation of the food of these days, especially in the uh, young people in college, you know. Well, I'm <coughs> Jose, I'm glad you're concerned about this because you still look like a young person. <laughs> I met Jose almost 40 years ago. He still looks, he still looks like he looked when I met him. <laughs> uh, well, this is a favorite, favorite subject of mine. But, uh, and, and, you know, there, there are different views on how to take care of one's health. And so I do try to avoid anything that's questioned or is controversial. But there are a few things that are undisputable. And that is that, number one, um, we do have, well, I should say, there's no doubt that we have saints that depart too early. And that in general view, even though in the society at large, there are extremely strong degenerative factors that people face as a result of lifestyle, including j just their manner of life and, as you know, substances and, and, and so on. 
the stress and turmoil in which they live. But uh, we don't do any better and we may do worse than the general population among the saints because we don't care enough for certain important health practices. So we have brothers who die in their 50s, and we look and we realize that could have been prevented. Die in their 60s, that could have been prevented. Even 70s and 80s, yes, that's getting close to a normal expected lifespan, but what they actually passed away of, we realize and would be considered medically professionally as preventable. So we could do better at this. And so just, just a, f a few principles. Um, the number one thing that is missed among the saints is, uh, and in the general population, is activity and exercise. Um, if that single thing could be remedied, that single thing could be remedied, it would make a great difference in the American population's health profile. It would make a big difference in the health profile of, of the saints and the Lord's recovery. So purposeful, <coughs> scheduled exercise should be part of one's life every day of the year. Every day of the year. And if we do that or come close to doing that, it uh, makes a way for one who does to live decades longer. Wow. A, re a recent medical article said at least a decade. So at least a decade. So you take two persons who are exposed to the same things, have the same life experience, everything, everything, everything's the same. One exercises, one doesn't. They have the same genetics, they're identical twins, say. One will live a decade longer. It, it, it's powerful. It's powerful. It's neglected, and, and uh, it's because our lives are complicated. And, and you know, there are fallacies that, that we get older and we just can't exercise anymore. That's almost never true. Uh, it may not be easy, but there are things that can be done to, to, to get exercise. Anyway, this is an important, an important point for one who wants to, wants to have a longer, longer life to serve. Uh, A big one among us is um, either being too busy or not being inclined to have regular health maintenance checkups where you have health screening. So among Americans of all races, the two greatest causes of death are heart and vascular disease, or cancer. There's effective screening for heart and vascular disease, and there is screening for many types of cancer, and with that, certain kinds of advice. Uh, and so it probably, it's, it's a worthwhile investment in time and financial resources to whatever your persuasion is regarding who would oversee your health. It's best not to oversee your health just yourself to entrust, entrust your health to a professional that you trust uh, of whatever kind of discipline, whatever kind of philosophy that is. 
someone who is skilled and knowledgeable and has your interest at heart and can watch over your situation, this makes a huge difference. Uh, the next thing is that most people do not get enough sleep. Now, there can be quality issues with sleep where one has um, uh, airway obstruction difficulties or, or um, they don't sleep well through the night for some reason or another. Um, of course, you know, if we, if we are enjoying the Lord, we sleep the best. And if we're having trouble sleeping, we just commune with the Lord and it's, it's well-spent time anyway. <laughs> but um, in general, uh, in the American population, uh, the average amount of sleep is five and a half to six and a half hours of sleep at, per night. And uh, that's significantly short of what is felt to be optimal for long-term health. Most people who sleep in the range of five and a half to seven hours feel that's enough because their body has learned to adapt to that and they do function okay with that amount of sleep, but it still becomes a, um, it still is a stressor to the various tissues. Sufficient stress to certain tissues results in certain kinds of problems, including malignancy. <clears throat> so it's rec most people don't realize that for our age group, it's recommended that one get anywhere between eight, sorry, between seven and a half and nine hours of sleep at night. Seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. If you don't get that much, it can be supplemented with an afternoon rest, but an afternoon rest doesn't do as much for your health as it does if you can sleep continuously uh, at night. And so um, if, if you have to have to get by with five or six hours of sleep at night, it's just good to realize that, you know, that's not what you really need and, and that, that, will, that will have a cost to you. And so if you can't stay asleep that long, you can still rest longer. It's also beneficial if you aren't able to sleep to just restfully be there for a longer time. And most people notice less intercurrent illness, respiratory illness, which in, in older persons can be serious uh, and other types of problems. So this is something we can care for. And then uh, perhaps the most obvious one that Jose included in his question is the question of how you eat. And how you eat is um, controversial. And so, so we tend, the only, the only safe thing that I know to do is to tell you what Brother Lee did. So in the mystery of the divine, the mystery and the mystery of the divine trinity and transmission of the, um, sorry, I don't have the whole title. Um, published in 1990, I think, um, probably speaking in Taipei to the full-time training, he talks about how he would like to have the, suggest to the young people that they have their eating for the rest of their life. And so he said the first thing to do First thing to do is to um, uh, not eat pork. 
what he was referring to especially, referring to pork, I think especially he was referring to um, the highly fatted forms like uh, bacon and sausage that we all like so much. Yeah. So, so he said, he said uh, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament not to eat pork, and the Bible can never be wrong. <laughs> so he said, he said, if, if, you're, if, you're going, if you're going to eat meat, eat it this way. Start with baked fish or grilled fish. Um, then go to um, poultry without skin, white meat over dark, white meat preferable to dark. Then if you have beef, have the less fatted forms, but then beef. Then finally lamb, which is probably a little bit more fatty. And then he said, do not eat fried foods. Do not eat fried foods. So that, that basically means do not go to fast food restaurants. <laughs> so he said, do not eat, do not eat fried foods. Then he said, he said, he said, watch out. Um, what is it for the three W's? Yeah, watch out for the three W's. Watch out for white sugar, white rice, and white flour. Avoid wh white sugar, white rice, and white flour. And so if you have something that's flour, then use a whole grain flour. If you're going to have rice, have brown rice. If you're going to have sugar, decrease it and have it in natural forms. So that's basically what Brother Lee said. So hopefully that's safe. <laughs> yes. And there may be others here as well. My conception of skin cancer yes. is that, okay, you got a skin cancer, you get it scraped off, cut off, end of the, cut out, end of the story. We recently lost a brother. He had a melanoma, oh. which ultimately resulted in stage four brain cancer. Yes. So skin cancer can be very, very dangerous. And I think you can elaborate more on that. Yes. I just recommend see a dermatologist annually and get things fixed <coughs> before they progress. Very good, yes, yes. So yes, some skin cancer is not dangerous. Some skin cancer is very dangerous. And any skin, <coughs> we say any skin mark or any skin problem that's changing uh, should, be, should be evaluated and, and dealt with, yes. Yes, melanoma is a very dangerous illness. Yes. Yes. Saints, so how about if we pray two by two before we go home?